0: Today, uh, as Jonathan read, uh, we're going through the triumphal entry, and what I really wanted to do was try to get us as firmly inside this story as we possibly can go. Uh, For those of you who have been in the church for a while, this is a pretty familiar story, Um, and even if it's not, even if this is the first time that you've heard it, there's still a separation uh, between us and the events of this story. So what I'm going to try and do today, um, if you would, uh, this might be a little uncomfortable, but go ahead and close your eyes, wherever you are, and I'm going to try and take you through the sights and the sounds of this day. It's a warm spring day with a breeze coming from behind. At the crest of the Mount of Olives, you look across the Kidron Valley and you can see the temple gates shining in the early morning sun. The disciples around you shuffle their feet in the green grass, waiting for the other two to return with Jesus' instructions. And when they do, Jesus mounts the donkey and begins a slow, confident ride down this slope of the hill with the other disciples close at hand. As they approach the city, winding their way through this valley, they can hear a commotion. It's different from the usual bustle of business. And the other crowds that they're used to, they can hear cheers and shouts. Squinting against the sun, you can see that the road is lined with people, stacked five and ten deep. They see cloaks being waved and placed on the ground as people kneel on the ground as Jesus draws nearer. And it's only as they get closer and closer that they can make out what that noise is. It's not quite shouting, no. It's singing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples are amazed and they can't stop smiling. This is exactly what they were picturing when they began following Jesus. Now go ahead and open your eyes. This is the scene that greets us as we're in the triumphal entry. That is what this story is often called and rightfully so. It's obviously a pretty appropriate name. Jesus here is shown as the only float in a victory parade just for him. But this goes beyond a celebration. This goes beyond just a public happening. You know, it's easy for us to miss it, but everything about this story is completely saturated with kingly imagery. And I want to take us through that because there is some separation that sometimes we miss. Now, first of all, we have the Mount of Olives. Now, not only is this the spot where Jesus is later arrested before his crucifixion, it also has important significance for the people of Israel who are waiting for the coming day of the Lord. Zechariah 14.4 says, On that day, the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. And because of this prophecy, the Mount of Olives has enormous significance for the people of Israel. They were looking here and waiting this day of the Lord. So it's very significant that Luke includes this detail in the triumphal entry. Now, second, I want to focus on the colt or the donkey that Jesus is riding. Now, at first glance, this looks like a pretty humble ride into town, especially for a king. There's a reason that our president rides in a limo and not a skateboard. But again, for Israel, this has deep significance. In 1 Kings chapter 1, King David tells his advisors to take the king's own mule, own donkey, and put Solomon on it and ride him through the streets so that he can be anointed with oil as king of Israel. But even beyond that, we can turn to Zechariah again. In chapter 9, God says this in verse 9, Shout for joy, O Zion. Look, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, humble And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God told them exactly what to expect when he would reinstate Israel and restore a king over them. And third, we have the spreading of the cloaks in front of them. Now, it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and John all include details of palm branches being spread, and that's usually why uh, the Sunday before Easter is called Palm Sunday. But for some reason, Luke decides to leave out the palm branches, instead reporting that people are taking off their outer garments and spreading them on the ground in front of Jesus. And once again, this is completely on par with how a king should be treated in Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 9, the prophet Elisha anoints Jehu as king of Israel, and the people respond by spreading their cloaks on the ground in front of the temple as he was walking. And last and perhaps most obvious, we have what they are saying, what they are singing. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Every single detail in this story is forcing readers to acknowledge that this is not just a celebration, it is a coronation. This is the King. Jesus is the King. That God spoke about hundreds of years before. Jesus is the King that Israel was waiting for. And if we all kept quiet about it, even the stones themselves would cry out. In this story, we're at the absolute peak of Jesus's earthly ministry, which makes it all the more jarring when less than a week later he is sentenced to death. I want to bring you into another story about a crowd. It's five days later, Friday morning. Jesus stands in front of the crowds once more. He's wearing a kingly robe that had been placed on him by Herod. But this time he's been badly beaten. His face is swollen. There's blood trickling from the side of his mouth. He's been kept awake with insults and mocking and flogging for almost two days. He sways on his feet, almost unable to keep his eyes open. He's been before the temple elders. He's been before Pilate. He's been before Herod. And now he's back before Pilate again because no one can find anything to punish him for. Yet as he turns to watch Pilate's face growing more and more nervous in front of the crowds, he knows what's coming. The air is once again heavy with shouts. But this time it's anger. This time it's a riot, this time it's a mob. This time he's the object of rage instead of praise. As Pilate tries to appease them, tries to spare his life, the crowd only grows angrier. They would rather have the murderer Barabbas released to them than to see Jesus walk free. The shouts increase to a furious level and every person there is screaming for Jesus' death. Out of the corner of his eye, Jesus sees Pilate give a small nod, and the soldiers lead Jesus away to his death. On Sunday, they're praising him as a king, and on Friday, they're condemning him as a criminal. The loud shouts of praise turn into even louder screams of crucify him. This is the story of two crowds. And what I want to draw your attention to is that this is the same Jesus. Nothing has changed with Jesus. It's the crowd that's different. Something happened in these few days to completely change how the people perceived him. And I think that it all comes down to what the word king really meant to them. What were they hoping for? What were they expecting Jesus, their king, to do for them? if they did truly interpret this event as what the prophets had talked about, they knew what was supposed to happen. Israel was supposed to be back on top. Ever since being overtaken by the Assyrians some 600 years before, Israel had been tossed back and forth between one empire or another that had taken over them, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And all along, Israel lay waiting waiting for their king to come so they could rise up, so they could fight off these oppressors, so that they could be back in the position of power that they once held under King David. So when Jesus comes as their Messiah and they realize that he is the king, they rejoice. Because they are so confident that Jesus is here to lead a glorious revolution. But Jesus is certain that he is here to die. An ugly, painful, humiliating death. You see, the thing about following a king like Jesus is that there is no king like Jesus. And there never will be. When we follow a king, it's because of what we think that king can do for me. We think that maybe he'll bring us money, wealth, Power, success, happiness, even peace. How many times are we guilty of praising Jesus for what we think he will do for us? And how many times are we ready to shout, crucify him, when he doesn't do something for us? Maybe you're in that camp. Maybe you prayed for for a new job and the phone refused to ring. Maybe you prayed over your marriage, but the divorce papers still came. Maybe you prayed for freedom from your addiction, but you could only feel yourself sinking deeper. Maybe you prayed for your children, but they slipped further and further away. Maybe you cried out just looking for an answer from the God you have heard loves you, and you've gotten nothing but silence. If you are hinging your hopes on these things from Jesus, it's easy to walk away disappointed, thinking that maybe this isn't the right king after all. As a junior in high school, my faith was radically shaken because God did not do for me what I felt confident he should have done. And I've heard countless stories of people experiencing similar doubts. This is why organizations like AA remind their members that expectations are premeditated resentments. No one in this world will ever match up with our expectations of them, both because no one sees the world quite like we do, and also because we have such a limited view of the world. And unfortunately, this includes Jesus. He will never do exactly as we expect him to do. However, the scary truth is that we are not expecting too much of Jesus, but we are expecting too little. It is not Jesus that falls short of our expectations. Our expectations fall short of all that Jesus came here to do. What Jesus' followers failed to realize was that death was not just an inevitability for their leader, but a necessity. His followers failed to see beyond what they themselves wanted to what Jesus knew the world needed deeply. You see, they wanted a spot in Israel's new kingdom. Instead, Jesus came offering a spot in the kingdom of heaven. They wanted seats of power. Instead, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to send them out in power, greater than they could ever ask or imagine. We want to be healed of our sicknesses and diseases. Jesus comes promising not just a restored body, but a restored mind and spirit as well. We want a long and happy life. Jesus says, that's not enough. I want to give you eternal life. We want that perfect spouse, that perfect marriage. Instead, Jesus says, no, I come promising a perfect love that never fades from the God that gave you this love. This week, you're faced with a choice. You don't get to pick who Jesus is or what he will do, but you do get to choose which crowd you'll be a part of. With our lives, with our words, with our actions, we're going to be crying out something. Is it going to be hosanna or crucify him? The most ridiculous backwards countercultural thing you can do this week is to praise Jesus at the absolute worst times. Not because he makes things go wrong, but because we know at the end of all things he will make things go right. When we have the strength and resilience to acknowledge God as king, even in the most troubling of times, people have no option but to take notice. It says a lot about us, sure, but it says so much more about the God that we worship. I want to give you one extreme example. Justin Martyr was one of our early church fathers. He lived sometime in the first half of the second century. He was a prolific writer. He wrote many, many theological works, some of which are are lost to us today, unfortunately. He actually gave us one of the earliest accounts of what a Christian worship service looked like. However, he was only converted to Christianity after watching how Christians behaved in the face of persecution. This is what he wrote in one of his books. Quote, When I was a disciple of Plato, hearing the accusations made against the Christians and seeing them intrepid in the face of death and of all that men fear, I said to myself that it was impossible that they should be living in evil and in the love of pleasure. That catches my attention. Based on how Christians respond to abuse and to suffering, Justin knew that it was impossible that they would be living in anything but the truth. And Justin Martyr not only went on to write all of these theological works to influence great fathers like Augustine, he was also martyred himself, allowing other people to take notice and to see his courage in the face of oppression the Spirit can use just one person to create a ripple effect outward. One moment of praise in the face of opposition and people will notice. This week, whether you're arguing with your spouse or a coworker, whether you're angry at your parents, whether you're angry at God as you are beside the sickbed of a loved one, whether you're not sure about this thing called faith, Or whether you feel like you're being led to your own death. Jesus is king, and there is no king like Jesus. Pray with me if you would. Father God, today we praise you. Today we acknowledge you as king, and we ask for the strength to continue to do so, even as life begins to go wrong. God, we ask that you would grant us the vision to see broadly the plan that you have for this earth so that when things go wrong in our lives, we are reminded of all the beauty and the hope and the love that you have set aside for us. God, we thank you for coming to this earth, for putting on human flesh, for undergoing so much suffering and pain on our behalf. We thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. And God, we pray for the strength, the fortitude, the endurance, and the perseverance to say, Hosanna, blessed is the King, this week. We pray all these things in the Son's holy name. Amen.